We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Xiaoxin Shen of the New Power Party. Hello, everyone. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. Hey, it's great to be back, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing fallout from last weekend's local elections and national referendums. And we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen hitting the road this week on what she's calling a journey around Taiwan to listen to the public. That comes in the wake of the DPP's poor showing in last Saturday's local elections, of course. Now, of course, there have been calls for the DPP to engage in self-reflection following its losses. And writing on her Facebook page, Tsai said that the tour will enable her to hear firsthand the thoughts and concerns of people across the country. Tsai's first stop was in Kaohsiung, which of course fell to the KMT's Han Guoyu. And speaking at a forum there with DPP supporters, Tsai apologised for the party's poor performance and said she believes a period of self-reflection will help the DPP perform better in future elections. Tsai this week also told a meeting of the DPP's Central Standing Committee that her lack of leadership and failure to properly communicate government policies with the public were partly to blame for the DPP's losses in the local elections. And Tsai also said that her failure to lead both the country and the party from the front has led to a divided society and resulted in the public's inability to feel the benefits of economic growth. So, Xiao, what do you think of Tsai Ing-wen's tour around the island to listen to the public? Or do you think maybe she should have been listening to the public before the elections? Well, um, it's, uh, it's better later than never, but um, I think she's right. I mean, she identified one of the problems as being losing the confidence of a youth vote. Um, and being a, a young voter myself and also a young uh, candidate, um, on the front line, I'm seeing the, uh, the signs that people, especially young people, are losing confidence in DPP or in general and the president in particular. Um, one of the reasons that is that... Um, President Tsai Ing-wen has a reputation of being a middle-of-the-row leader. So whatever reform she was pushing, um, it's always a feeling like it's not hard enough, um, especially on the progressive camp. Um, for example, to to name some of the issues, um, same-sex marriage or labor's rights or even the, uh, the pension reform. So um, she has a reputation of being, you know, trying to listen to both sides and understanding both arguments and then make a final decision. And often that's feeling like that's not quite quite there. So um, as, be, as a young voter, I, I feel like um, the president should be more um, forceful in her, um, in her, in her you know, reforms and then trying to understand what the young people are thinking. And that's why that's one of the reasons the president should, uh, should actually should start listening to to more voters. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, I can. I, I agree with Shell's uh, assessment, particularly on the on uh, young voters. Um, I know some uh, young and youngish uh, opinion leaders, and they are pretty well uh, who are of progressive uh, political views, and they are thoroughly disgusted with uh, her. They were thoroughly disgusted uh, here in Taichung with Lin Jialong. Uh, they were just flat out, flat out just said, I'm just not going to vote. And that was really the attitude. Um, voter turnout, for example, here in Taichung was down by 5.8%. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me if that was a big chunk of the people who stayed home um, uh, compared to the 2014 election. Um, 
so there's a you know that that is definitely a problem however <clears throat> more fundamentally um, <clears throat> the the problem is frankly her going out there and this is the one thing I do disagree with is <clears throat> her going out there and listening to a lot of voters is probably not going to do any good um, and the reason I say this is because that I think is kind of to a certain degree what's kind of gotten her in the in, in her and the DPP in trouble in the first place the party's been trying to be all things to all people for quite some time, and the, and the reason is simple. The, the two major political parties in, in Taiwan are dysfunctional. Um, in other words, they're not normal political parties based on a, you know, the kinds of ideology that you'd see overseas, for example, a left or right split or conservative versus liberal or um, uh, capitalistic versus socialistic or these kinds of divides. Essentially, you've, I mean, the the KMT, of course, is a revolutionary party from the from Qing Dynasty China, um, which is a little bit of a weird anomaly here. Um, and of course, the DPP was fundamentally founded to defeat and destroy the KMT. And so, it's the identity issue, and defeating the KMT is the entire function and purpose of the DPP. That's not a normal, healthy ideology. Um, it's not a healthy positive message, per se, uh, for the voters. So they're stuck in a position where they have to listen to all kinds of voters across the conservative, liberal, much of their base on issues like um, marriage equality. A lot of their base is in the more conservative center and south. Um, And so a big percentage of their voting bloc are socially conservative. Uh, they're tied to the Presbyterian Party. Um, <clears throat> so they're not going to turn their backs on a large percentage of their own electorate. And as you can see from the referendum results, for example, uh, that probably made sense. It's really obvious why they've been dodging the issue. Um, <clears throat> so the, I, I think that the funda- fundamental problem is, is that the party is trying to be all things to all people, and nobody's happy. And I think this is kind of a chronic structural problem. And this is amplified by the fact that Tsai Ing-wen is a, naturally, she's a diplomat, and she was a diplomat before. She's an excellent diplomat. I think she's done a, a, a fantastic job on the foreign policy side, um, <clears throat> where nuance, subtlety, uh, you know, sort of working quietly is a, is a really strong is is the is a, is a good way to do it, but her consensus building and that kind of approach uh, within Taiwan it comes across as weak and a lack of leadership when it's on domestic issues. Um, yes, I totally agree with Donovan that. But I want to add another um, dimension to this um, analysis: is that the so-called the Kerwinger effect or the uh, splitting with the Kerwinger effect? That's that because. The, the many of the independent voters or the young voters, they are viewing this split with Kerwinger as the party catering too much toward the extreme base, um, especially the constant badgering of Kerwinger as being, uh, uh, say, um, a tool of the Communist Party or even somebody that's uh, assisting um, the China with, uh, with with organ harvesting. Um, it's just too extreme that many of the independence voters do not believe. Um, that's why it's hurting the party really badly, not only in Taipei, but it's almost, you know, across, spread across the whole country uh, to peop- even uh, voters in the South. So the party is 
same image right now is being tainted as being too extreme and then too lacking in leadership that they are not willing to stand up to the uh, the most um, you know aggressive person who is uh, always you know not try not not going to work with Cohenger even when he's doing a lot of um, constructive you know things in in, in Taipei. So that's uh, that's one of the things I. I see. Yeah, I mean, I can I can actually further that um, and add that recently Taiwan uh, moved uh, over half the populace for the first time. Uh, it no longer identifies by, with a, a party. They they now identify the majority of Taiwan's electorate now identifies as independent because they are tired of both of the parties. Um, and so I'm of the theory that there's there's a, a, a major a realignment coming. Um, in Taiwan's politics as a result. I think there's a lot of people that, that, that I've termed the uh, pox on both your houses voters. Well, and of course, Xiao, you mentioned leadership. And of course, this week, Jilung City Mayor Lin Yo Chung was selected to serve as acting DPP chairperson. Of course, Lin replaces President Tsai Ing-wen, who stepped down from the post late Saturday to take responsibility for the party's poor performance in the elections. Lin, though, of course, won re-election this past weekend. And speaking to reporters following his being given the job, he said that his mission as acting chairman will include organising an election for the position of party chairperson, or as though overseeing work to nominate candidates for upcoming by-elections. So, Xiao, do you think the Jilung city mayor was a good choice as acting DPP chairperson, or maybe he should have taken the job permanently? Yes, I think he's a fine choice. I mean, he is a mayor who is not involved in a lot of um, uh, controversial issues, and he actually has the confidence of many of the party members uh, as being a, doing a good job as an acting party chair. And then there are rumors spreading around as um, the next new party chair may be the uh, head of the legislative when um, Su Jiawen. Um, uh, but he, I think that would, if that's the case, I mean, that would be the really good choice because, uh, you know, Sh- Chairman Su is a very, very, um, very, very good person who's uh, won a lot of uh, confidence as in many parties, he's known to be somebody who can work with both sides of the aisle. And then also in MPP, there's a lot of person who work with him and then recognize his leadership. So um, if that's the case, I mean, we're happy to see how he pans out. Yeah, I think actually Sujachin's a, a pretty good choice. Um, he ran for mayor down here in uh, Taichung uh, years back and just narrowly lost. Um, and he, he's got a very, very firm grasp on policies, uh, and uh, he, yeah, so he, he's a very talented uh, person. There, there are some tricky parts with him, though. Um, <clears throat> one is obviously it, it's assumed that the party chair will also be, uh, it, you know, is, is the front runner to become the presidential candidate in the next election. And uh, in the 2012 election, when he was the VP candidate, uh, the party kept getting hammered repeatedly over that uh, property in Pingdong. Um, And a couple of things like that, that that were a bit of a drag on the Thai campaign in 2012. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about Lin, um, except that he's uh, supposed to be a fresh face. He's done well in uh, traditionally pan blue Jilong, which could be a real boost for the party. I think if he does well, uh, he's younger, he's got, um, he's do, he does well in an area that is not traditionally green. 
which is a big selling point, uh, and he was reelected this time. So that means he's done something right. Um, so the, there's, and apparently, according to the reports that I've read, uh, he has a lot of experience with, you know, with uh, dealing with party issues. So I think if he does a good job over the next little while, he could be the front runner to be the actual chair. That that, but that would mean doing a particularly stellar job in the position. Um, but right now, for party chair, the the there's seems like the best candidates um, like Jung and Taoyuan. Um, he doesn't want the job, uh, and then the others that are available just got badly beat. Um, you know, Su Zhenchang, uh, Lin Jialong, um, and these guys uh, probably would not be good choices because they just recently got so roundly crushed in the election. Yes, but whoever the next new chair is, um, I think that the DPP may be thinking how they can thoroughly revamp their uh, their message and their image because right now DPP um, is making people feel like it's a it's an old party I mean it's a party who is always touting old people's ideas and then not you know respecting young people's you know ambitions um, especially in the past election we can see a lot of that happening um, one of the particular example would be the uh, choice of the uh, new Taipei city candidates um, so I would suggest um, that the DPP may be letting the uh, the next generation, you know, take the the ship. Um, there would be uh, something that would, everybody would be, you know, eager to see. Right, moving on. And KMT Taipei mayoral candidate Ding Shou Jong this week filed a request for a vote recount, and they did that on Wednesday. Now, Ding filed the application with the Taipei District Court, citing what he claimed to be major flaws in the way the Central Election Commission and the Taipei City Election Commission handled the elections. Now, according to Ding, many people complained about irregularities during the vote and after the voting process itself, with apparently reports saying that voting and counting took place simultaneously Simultaneously, at at least one polling station in Taipei's Sherlin district. Ding is also claiming that tactical voting could have occurred, as he claims that pan-green voters who initially intended to vote for Pursuya Yao might have changed their minds and voted for Ke Wenzhe after seeing that Yao was trailing far behind. Now, Ding lost to Ke in Taipei by 3,254 votes. And, of course, Ding's points are related to other issues on polling day, where voters in some parts of the country and at some polling polling stations, had to wait in line for two to three hours at some polling stations, and the vote-counting process was not completed until 3.02am the following day. Now, Premier William Lai is now asking the Central Election Commission to come up with an action plan for a more efficient voting process following the problems on Saturday, while Cabinet spokeswoman Colas Yotaka says that the Election Commission is also being asked to study the feasibility of using electronic voting systems for referendums in the future. And talking of referendums, the Commission's Vice Chairman Chen Jiaojian says that his office is also seeking to amend the Referendum Act so that votes would not have to be held if they're part of a referendum on the same day as a national election. So, Xiao, you didn't vote, you didn't vote, you voted, but you didn't wait for very long. Yeah, I waited about 25 minutes. So, my polling station is one of uh, the lucky ones that uh, does not get too many people. But I've heard and I've seen that polling stations they are packed and then uh, people still in line for you know one to two hours and some unfortunate stories that um, some people stood in the wrong lines so they have to switch lines and wait another hour or two so it's a it's a horror story that that Taiwan you know you know voters have not seen 
rarely because you know in the past elections the voting has been pretty swift and easy. Um, but this year, uh, with the higher voter turnout um, and the adding of the referendum, who there are ten ballots and then there are like complicated three ballot boxes, so uh, they add in quite a lot of voting time. But um, regarding the Taipei City, uh, you know, mayor election. I would say there's no a good outcome for 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 Ding Shouzhong because uh, whether the suit is successful and um, whether you know if we have a new election, just as Gavin mentioned, I mean people who voted for uh, Pasuya Yao will understand that the, this time around they 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 need to vote for Kerr, otherwise Ding is going to be the uh, next mayor. So, um, but other than that, I mean there are actually some you know. And anomalies in this election, particular that there are people still voting when the vote is being counted. So, if that's the case, uh, that that's something that we really should think about how to improve this system. And, and electronic voting is really um, probably the answer. So, um, as, as more technology is being intru- introduced, um, we want to make sure it's it, this whole system is, is safe, it's reliable. Um, so, it, that, that's something we can think about in the future. Yeah, I think Xiao's pretty well covered it. I'll just add a few uh, quick comments. Um, I think that the, um, the I think this, I mean this was obviously it was a slow moving train wreck. Everybody knew this was going to be a mess, and it really spoke badly to the administration's uh, ability to execute. Um, they pushed to get the referendum law passed, but for uh, me and many other writers have been. We're, we're writing articles like, are you, can you really handle this? I mean, are you prepared? Do you have enough people? Uh, and so this was a predictable problem, and it was a widely known uh, to the public problem that it was going to be quite likely it could be a, a serious problem, and they, they still really weren't very well prepared. And I'd be willing to bet that that alone lost them some um, some support at the vo- at the voting uh, booth, just simply seeing the in their face and living through a very poor failure to carry through on the part of the administration. I'm sure did them a lot of harm. What about um, I think Dean Sojong? Uh, he he's dropped the he's dropped the the lawsuit because he doesn't have a legal leg leg to stand on. He may have a point about the about the the way that it's currently run and, and how people may change their vote if they're reporting and counting at the same time. Um, but legally, he didn't really have any challenge because that's the way it's been done. Um, the recount, I, I think as Xiao noted, is, is probably not going to uh, give him much. And of course, if there's a, a re-vote, um, probably uh, Yao would drop out and then uh, Ko would win with a landslide. So I think pretty much Ding is... Uh, he, he's 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 not going to win no, pretty much no matter what. I'd be a little bit concerned about electronic voting because China, we already know, is trying to interfere in elections here, and uh, that opens concerns about hacking. And uh, Taiwan is pretty strong on that, so possibly it is, but I, I would be a little bit worried about potential uh, security issues there. Right, now we have to take a short break here on Taiwan This Week, but we'll be right back after these brief commercials. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And while there was talk when the DPP took power in 2016 of Taiwan becoming the first Asian country to legalise same-sex marriage, that idea took a knock this past weekend when a majority of voters opted to back referendums initiated by anti-same-sex marriage groups. And I spoke with Deutsche Welle correspondent William Young about the referendum results. So, William, what was your reaction to the referendum outcomes? I was definitely a little bit surprised by how much support the oppositions uh, are able to gather in the end, because uh, especially uh, the fact that they get all three anti-marriage equality referendums over the threshold and uh, let it become legally binding. But I couldn't say this is completely a surprise, uh, because I've always known that the uh, supporting side had always had the uh, challenge of uh, building, I mean, uh, convincing the uh, older generations, especially those uh, living outside of the urban centers like Taipei, Taichung, or Kaohsiung, to really uh, support their cause and uh, believe and, you know, like, trust uh, their arguments. So um, I, I think this is this just means that there is still a disparity, uh, a gap between uh, the supporting side and a lot of the uh, Taiwanese citizens are living in rural areas and also the older generation. There needs to be a lot more di- direct dialogue uh, for them to convince these people that what they're pushing for is not going to uh, hurt Taiwan and is not going to uh, make Taiwan a more backward place. Right. How could they do this? I think, number one, that the, the most important thing for them is to really uh, hold a lot of information sessions uh, to have a genuine conversation with, or, uh, with, with the older generation especially so that uh, they can listen and uh, understand uh, the older generation's uh, real concerns while uh, also have the chance to uh, make their point. But uh, I think that will take a lot of resources, uh, both uh, in terms of the human power, but also uh, money-wise, because uh, what we see from the anti-marriage equality campaign is that they printed out a lot of... uh, different kinds of uh, information uh, in listlets, uh, online, and also even on TV. That's how they're able to uh, ex- expand expand their reach uh, in Taiwan and really uh, have a lot more support than everyone thought they would have in the beginning. Right, I mean, do you think the, do you think the problem, we'll call it a problem for the sake of words, is naivety and not understanding or bigotry? I think it's I'd like to think it's not bigger tree, but uh, the 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 way that the anti-marriage equality campaign was framing their arguments uh, does seem like they are trying to, uh, you know, re- really tap into the core of a lot of the older generation's concern, which is. Uh, Parents worrying about their kids being exposed to uh, dangerous behaviors and uh, cultures and uh, dangerous uh, ideologies, rather uh, rather than really uh, making sticking to their point, which is uh, family value is important. I mean, they said that, but what they what what really worked for them in the end is uh, them uh, framing 
the LGBT, uh, I mean, passing marriage equality as a potential threat to uh, turning Taiwan into an AIDS island or uh, really allowing a lot of uh, a lot more young kids to become LGBTQ when they, that could have been prevented if they're not exposed to uh, LGBTQ education content too early on. I think these are the key uh, factors that uh, decided and determined uh, how they can uh, get a lot of the undecided yet worrying parents' uh, sympathies and support in the end. Right. I mean, what do you see moving forward now as regards same-sex marriage and the status thereof? The LGBTQ, uh, I, I, I think now the battle is uh, back in the legislature, which uh, uh, procedurally uh, they will have to start uh, deliberating between different parties about uh, what is the most uh, suitable and likely uh, path for them to choose in order to legalize it before May 24th next year. Um, and with the oppositions now uh, having the upper hand, while the LGBTQ community really uh, feeling the setback and uh, just not knowing uh, what to do moving forward, uh, I think the key will be the executive drums, uh version of their uh, draft uh, amendments. And once that's out, I think the legislature will have a very clear image of uh, whether they are going to uh, just follow the referendum's results and uh, go for uh, setting up a separate law uh, allowing same-sex couples to have the civil union, uh, the right to form civil union, or mirac- miraculously the, exec- the executive run might come up with a version that allows for the full marriage quality, but I am leaning more towards um, the limited uh, civil union just because the result of the overall election is also a big blow to the DPP, and now they are definitely going to feel a lot more pressure uh, moving forward. Uh, going into 2020 especially, it's just a little bit more than a year away from the actual election. Uh and the, the other thing that I want to uh, bring out is uh, because now Taiwan is no longer the leader of the party. So whoever that takes the reign, if it's someone that's from the conservative faction within the uh, party, then that would also have a big impact in terms of how the majority of uh, DPP legislators are going to, uh, lead, you know, like uh, act on this moving forward. So I am not too optimistic about uh, the LGBTQ community uh, gaining the full marriage equality that they originally wanted to have. Right. Do you feel let down by the Thai administration? I am definitely very let down by the administration in terms of how they were pretty much uh, just setting this key issue aside when uh, it's clear that they did have a lot of momentum to legalize it uh, pretty easily, at, right after the court ruling uh, last year. But um, Taiwan has always been known for being very, uh, like, she doesn't like direct conflict. She likes to handle things in a more a smooth way. But uh, when she uh, encountered a lot of uh, resistance from the conservative, conservative faction within the DPP, she then decided 
you know, to let things cool down a little bit, which means that she kept telling the public that this issue needs a lot more consensus and dialogue within the society, while pretty much she's trying to, uh, you know, convince or, like, get the support of the uh, of the, the resistance or the considered faction within the DPP, but uh, she did too little to uh, use her leadership to not put pressure, but rather... Uh, insert a little bit more authority on this issue. She pretty much just let the uh, the, the legislators uh, neutralize uh, her original uh, stance on this, and then she moved into a more uh, conservative, cons- like the, the, the more neutral position on this, which means that uh, that allows the opposition to really have the six-month-to-a-year window to uh, push for... Uh, and gather support and uh, strategize for the uh, referendum that they were able to uh, put together in the end. Right, I mean, how do you think this makes Taiwan look? Because, of course, I mean, one and a half years ago, Taiwan was making headlines all over the world as becoming, you know, headlines that screamed Taiwan to become first country in Asia to legalize gay marriage. Yeah, I mean, this definitely uh, is a big blow to Taiwan's uh, international image and reputation, especially uh, we've been pretty much held as the LGBTQ capital uh, in Asia in the last few years. But I also have a, I, I also think it's not necessarily bad that the international community is finally getting a more real uh, look and uh, in, like understanding about Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwanese society's uh, complexity, which means that what they were seeing uh, a, a year and a half ago was a group of a, a very vibrant uh, activism scene within the LGBTQ community, but they never get a chance to see the other side, which is the very still pretty conservative uh, social value that's uh, very deep rooted in Taiwan. So after this referendum, I think uh, it is also allowing the international community to. Uh, have a more balanced uh, reporting when it comes to uh, especially progressive issues in Taiwan. And that was me in conversation with William Young. Now, of course, other referendums were held this past weekend, and one of them, of course, was, well, does Taiwan want to abolish nuclear power? And, well, people voted nay to that one, and now President Tsai Ing-wen, well, this week she said that her administration's goal of making Taiwan a nuclear-free homeland by 2025 remains unchanged. But that comment came only a day after the cabinet announced that Taiwan will no longer stick to the goal of becoming nuclear-free by 2025. So, contradictory messages there from the same political party. Not necessarily. Um, the, 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 what they could do is they go through with a form. In other words, the, the, the referendum item specifically asked to remove that uh, that from the law, meaning it would be no longer part of the law that they have to remove all the nuclear power by 2025. And then Tsai is saying, well, we're just going to go ahead and do it anyway. So, you know, they can remove it from the law and then try to target that actually happening. But I think it's worth keeping in mind that all of these targets were set at 2025, which if Tsai Ing-wen or the DPP wins two successive terms, happens to be one year past uh, a second term. So, you know, I, it, it's, um, you know, so, I, you, you know, the, 
you know, there, there may be a change of party. There's all kinds of possibilities between now and then. So, and by setting it after a potential two-term presidency, which has been the, the case so far in the Democratic era, um, it, it sort of opened it up to being reversed right from the get-go. Um, so, and now the other thing is, is that this may open up, it may be for some in the government something of a relief um, if they could keep maybe one of the nuclear power plants going at a low level, they and so they have a, a, a bigger reserve margin. Um, that may be something that a lot of them may feel is is could actually be beneficial. Yeah. So the anti-nuclear camp is uh, is really taking a, a whip in this in this referendum. Um, so the the DPP is really think needs to rethink its strategy on this front. Um, even in the in the short term, probably um, the nuclear parties should still be a, a strong source of our, our power. And in doing that, we should really think about how to uh, maintain the nuclear plant in, in a safe and reliable fashion so that um, no matter what the, the, the future voter may have in mind for our, uh, our power structure, um, we can still either keep the nuclear power or abolish it. But in doing so, in a way, especially to avoid corruption, because right now, if you think about the land, you look at the landscape, all the people related to uh, almost all that's related to the nuclear, you know, power industry are in some way or form. I mean, connected to say the uh, the, the 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 KMT. I mean, um, camp. So um, you you want to make sure that. This is not always the case, so that whenever the KMT is back in power, the nuclear is back in power. Um, I want to make sure that this is uh, uh, actually a more uh, multifaceted you know, industry, so that when DPP is really rethinking strategy, this should be factored into their plans. I mean, do you think this has left the government in a bit of a dilemma, Donovan? I mean, the economics minister Chen Rongjin came out this week and made rather a wishy-washy statement in which he said the government's new energy policy will focus on the use of green and nuclear energy while promoting public awareness of the need to save electricity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's and I think that's exactly what they're going to do. They're just going to be wishy-washy about it. Um, You know, they pretty much are. It would be actually very difficult, from what I understand, for them to stop the decommissioning of two of the nuclear power plants. There's just not much time uh, to change all the laws and all of that. But they they could at least keep the third one on. So my suspicion is is that they'll play out the clock a little bit and see how quickly uh, a lot of the green energy options are coming online while simultaneously keeping an eye on uh, demand. Because you've got a lot of, for example, here in Taichung, we've got a lot of new uh, you know, chip fabs and this kind of thing from the Central Taiwan Science Park. And they, they're actually adding uh, p- pollution potential to the Taichung power plant because they're adding two gas-fired units but not planning to retire any of the coal-fired units. Uh, and the gas units are generally, as a rule of thumb, are about half as polluting as a coal one. So they're actually adding the equivalent of another uh, coal unit to the Taichung power plant. So if they, if they have this one, if they have a nuclear power plant, possibly two, but at least one, sort of in reserve, that will actually give the government more flexibility. But they could still work toward removing that one by 2025, then they can say they're still working toward that promise, but then they'll, you know, then it'll be a new president in 2025 and it's their problem. 
Right, and another referendum which, well, surprised many, well, it didn't really surprise many, I think it was always going to pass anyway, was a referendum on the, the continuing ban of the import of food products from areas in Japan affected by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. Now, it just so happens that this week, Japanese government officials are here in Taipei for the annual trade and economic talks. Now, there's also talk from Tokyo. Oh, Japan could actually file a complaint over this referendum with the World Trade Organization. Because basically, it says it's unfair that Taiwan is discriminating against Japanese products because, well, not all countries are banning products from the Fukushima area. Now, Foreign Ministry spokesman Andrew Lee said this week, while the government has to respect public opinion, it's also hoping that it holds talks with Tokyo on the matter regularly to ensure that bilateral trade ties are not affected. Now, the government spokesman also said that any final decision on the ban must be based on international standards, scientific evidence and the relevant WTO rules. Now, of course, we also heard this week that, well, China is going to lift its ban on products from Fukushima. Hong Kong has partially lifted its ban. Most of the world doesn't have a ban on products from Fukushima. Korea still does, though, however, because they had a bit of a spat with Japan at the WTO about this very matter. So, Xiao, do you think this was a... a brother, iffy referendum that the of course the KMT initiated referendum it's really a, a weird referendum given that the KMT um, itself has expressed interest in lifting the ban um, so right now in initiating this referendum they are actually giving out a, a message as being you know uh, just trying to be a, a, maybe a troublemaker of some sort so um, what I'm seeing is that there there are I wouldn't call it conspiracy theories, but there are you know, theories going around that in pushing for this referendum, the KMT is actually trying to um, trying to get between um, uh, you know Taiwan's president, Taiwan's government, and and Japan. So I want to make sure they they want to um, disrupt this bilateral relations so that um, China, the Taiwan needs to rely more and more on you know the economic sources from from China so that's one of the theories I'm I'm, I'm seeing but it's really a, a, a interesting or weird referendum and it's it's pretty sad to see pass yeah I'm hearing you know I mean a lot of people think that that there's a there's always been a, a sort of a long-term pattern in the KMT of sort of throwing irritants into the into the Japan uh, Taiwan relationship um, <clears throat> But I, I do think that there's one thing that's not odd about it, and that is that the, um, there's been a long history in Taiwan of food nationalism, for a, a lack of a better term. The, the public here, for some reason, has, has been pretty consistently, when asked, against importing food. Um, if this happened, you know, we, obviously we have the whole thing with uh, ractopamine. Uh, it's been a long-standing irritant with the U.S. Public's behind it. Uh, the WTO, there was all kinds of, uh, you know, trouble over that. Going farther, all the way back to importing Turkey and from the U.S. And, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, it, it's been a it, – it, ever since I've been in Taiwan, it seems like this is a chronically uh, recurring thing. And whenever some politicians go out and say, you know, we can't import this because nationalism, something, 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 it, it, the public seems to respond. It, it's a, it's a long-standing pattern. 
My question, of course, about this referendum was because lots of Taiwanese people go to Japan on holiday. Millions of them go there every year. And I'm wondering how many people voted to keep the ban that have actually travelled to Japan and eaten food from Fukushima. Xiao. Yeah, I mean, I think the people who voted for the ban are, are just some people who are the victim of so much uh, misinformation in this election. So it's not only in this referendum, it's in the uh, in the same-sex marriage referendum or even in the uh, the so-called the Tokyo Olympics, you know, name ratification referendum as well. There's just so much misinformation or malinformation going around and then people are actually voting out of fear. So in this referendum in particular, people are just voting out of fear they're going to eat the uh, nuclear contaminated food. But actually, it's not the case because when we import foods from Japan, we actually go through a lot of process, a lot of um, medical exams to make sure it's safe. So I'm not sure why, um, you know, this, but there's just so much force behind this referendum and the, the opposite camp is just not able to cope. Right, and that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Xiao Xin Shen. Goodbye. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. Hey, goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.